And the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? 1 Nephi 11.21 Welcome back to the In Her Image podcast. I am Jess Burdett, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by a researcher, a scholar, a professor who I have admired these last two years since I discovered him and his articles online. His writings were really instrumental in my my starting on the path of seeking Heavenly Mother. Um, reading his research and how it relates to the Book of Mormon and to the Restoration really just ignited a fire in me to discover why is Heavenly Mother seemingly missing? And reading his articles really helped me to find some of those missing pieces and to feel a little less hopeless in this journey, that there are substantial pieces that we can find in our canon. So thank you so much, Dr. Val Larson, for joining me. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. So Dr. Larson is currently a professor of marketing at James Madison University, and he has a PhD in marketing from Virginia Tech, as well as a PhD in English from the University of Virginia. And he has written um, and published several articles, some on the Book of Mormon, some on marketing, um, and some on our Heavenly Mother. Um, I did a recording of one of these articles, the first one that I discovered, which was titled, First Visions and Last Sermons, Affirming the, great, affirming the Divine Sociality, Rejecting the Greater Apostasy. And that was published on interpreterfoundation.org in 2020. And I'm really excited to dive more into how you came to write these articles. Um, so let's just start there, Dr. Larson. What first got you interested in researching about Heavenly Mother? One Sunday on the way home from church when I was between seven and nine years old, about 1962, I don't remember the exact age, but I do remember the exact place. It was right where the road out of Moreland, Idaho joins the Arco Highway. Anyway, my dad, who was more interested in theology than most people were in those days, explained to me that God had once been a human being like me and that I had the capacity to become a God like him. Now, this immediately struck me as a very big deal. This changed everything. And among many other things, it meant that I had a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. Human men cannot exist without human women. So if God was a man-made divine, he must be accompanied by a woman-made divine. An idea that was as obvious as it was welcome because I had and have a great mother. She's 92 years old, still in good health, and has been a great influence in my life. So that was my first exposure to our very distinct and distinctly glorious LDS theology, a theology I have loved since that time. Mother in heaven is an essential element of that theology. If we lose her or forget her, we lose and forget all of it. I and all other males have as much stake in mother in heaven as you sisters do. If you do not have a divine model, neither do we. Our capacity to become like our Father in heaven is indissolubly connected 
to your capacity to become like our mother in heaven. So that was my first introduction. Then when I was 15 years old in 1970, I had some problems that concerned me. And while I had never heard anyone talk about it before, it suddenly occurred to me that I should pray to mother in heaven about the problem. So while I loved and respected father in heaven, in that moment of intense perceived need, I wanted to seek the guidance and blessing of mother in heaven. She felt a little more approachable. So for about a week, I addressed my prayers to mother in heaven. And I must say, the prayers felt good. I felt a strong connection to her. Now, I had a great seminary teacher then, uh, Brother Cummings. And after praying to mother for that week or so, I mentioned what I was doing to him. He didn't rear back in horror. He was empathic, but he did say something, and I don't remember just what, that persuaded me to switch back to praying to Father in Heaven exclusively. While I stopped praying to Mother, I never lost my interest in her and in our LDS theology that cannot exist without her. So with that background, you can imagine how delighted I was when Daniel Peterson's Nephi and his Asherah was published and I read that. I was already something of a Book of Mormon scholar, and that article opened my eyes to Mother's presence in Scripture. So did Kevin Christensen's work, especially his bringing Margaret Barker to the attention of the LDS community. I also saw some of Allison Van Felt's good work on this topic, and they inspired me to look more closely for Mother in Scripture. Uh, would it be all right to give an overview of some of the things I've learned about and written about Mother in Heaven? Absolutely. Please do. Okay. So I've published seven articles on the Book of Mormon and have others under review. And one of them is exclusively about Mother in Heaven. Now, that also covers a lot of biblical stuff as well as Book of Mormon stuff. And she is a major part in two other articles. So uh, three articles. Perhaps I can summarize them. All are available online in both text and audio. So the first article published in 2015 in Square Two is entitled Hidden in Plain View, Mother in Heaven in Scripture. One of the opening paragraphs gives a good overview of that article. It says this, quote, Heavenly Mother is prominently present in Scripture. With the Father, she is Alpha and Omega. That is, we find her in the first verse of Genesis, and when we look for her in the last chapter of Revelation, she is there. In the scriptural account of our departure from the pre-existence, we take leave of Mother in Heaven. During our lives on earth, when we're sick or afflicted, she blesses, comforts, and heals us. She's present when the Savior effected the atonement, and she put us on the path to fully claim that great gift. When we return to heaven at the end of this life, we find her there to greet us and help us be born again in immortal and exalted bodies. She prominently plays all the roles we would expect a divine mother to play, unquote. In the article, I show that each of these roles is signified in scripture. So of the three articles, this one most fully lists the many places that mother shows up in scriptures and in Jewish tradition. In preparing to talk with you, I listened to lots of your previous podcasts. I know that you've discussed many of mother's appearances in scripture with your previous guests, but most listeners would find in that article some scriptural appearances of mother with which they're not currently familiar. The second article is the one you mentioned, 
uh, in the introduction, first visions and last sermons, affirming divine sociality, rejecting the greater apostasy. Now, that's a 2020 article in um, the interpreter, as you said. This is the most theological of the three articles. It argues that there's a kinship between Lehi and Joseph Smith, who both believe in the religion of Abraham, which includes the divine family, mother, father, and son. In that article, I extensively contrast the theology of Abraham and those two prophets with the mainstream theologies of Orthodox Christianity and Judaism. The third article published in 2021, also in the interpreter is entitled Josiah to Zoram to Sherem to Jerem and the Big Little Book of Omni. This article discusses how Lehi's theology that included both mother and son died out by the time the Book of Omni was written. So it's not in the Book of Mormon after that, except it, is, it does show up just a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm working on another article with uh, uh, that we're going to try to speak to how the uh, episode with Lamoni and his wife also, we think, has some elements of that. So that that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, in the future. <laughs> now, here's uh, what all these articles have in common. They all focus on what I call the greater apostasy, the time when Mother in Heaven was purged from Scripture. It's also the time when the theology of the LDS Church was separated from that of Orthodox Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam. This separation didn't really occur with what we call the great apostasy. That was just an echo of the greater apostasy that happened in the time of King Josiah and Lehi. I believe those of us who want to see the doctrine and worship of mother in heaven fully restored need to adopt the term greater apostasy and really focus attention on it. Mother and father in heaven have given us a perfect way to do it. And I'd like to talk about that. If you're okay, with proceeding to what they've given us. Uh, can we do that? Yes, thank you. Okay, so when it comes to Mother in Heaven, the two most important stories in Scripture both talk about the same thing, a man being given a book. These two men, King Josiah and Lehi, lived at the same time. And I'm quite certain that our Mother and Father in Heaven want us to focus on these contrasting stories. Here's how Josiah got his book. When he was 18, there was a renovation of Solomon's temple. During the renovation, Hilkiah, the high priest, said he discovered a book of scripture that had been lost. There's good reason to think, as we'll see, that he may have written it instead of discovering it. Anyway, Hilkiah, the high priest, gave the book to Shaphan, the scribe, who took it to King Josiah. The book was probably part of our current book of Deuteronomy. The book said that the Jews had forgotten their one true God, and therefore Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. It also said the only place where sacrifices to the one true God could be made was in the temple where Hilkiah was high priest. That's one reason why some think Hilkiah wrote it. It greatly enhanced his power. Having read this book, Josiah went to war against the worship of the heavenly family that included Mother Asherah, Father El, and son Yava and all the rest of the hosts of heaven, all of whom, by the way, were thought to have bodies. El and Yava were collapsed into one incorporeal God, without body, completely different from human beings, from humanity. Now, let's think about the parts of this story, because the Lehi story has an element that corresponds to each part. There is the temple, the high priest Hilkiah in the temple, the scribe Shaphan, who carries the book to Josiah, 
and Josiah, who receives and reads the book and discovers Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Here's the important point. In the Lehi story, the temple won't be one on earth. It will be the real thing the temple on earth symbolizes, the place where God dwells in heaven. The one who sends the book won't be an earthly high priest like Hilkiah. It will be the corporeal God, El, sitting on his throne surrounded by angels. The carrier of the book won't be a human scribe like Shaphan. It will be Jehovah, Christ. Instead of Josiah, Lehi will get the book and find out that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, not because it believes in the divine family, as Josiah said, but because it has rejected them. So which of these two books? The one coming from the earthly temple, the earthly high priest carried by a human scribe, or the one coming from God himself carried by Christ is more likely to contain a true message. What do you think? Mm. <laughs> wow, it's so clear when you put it all out like that. Yeah, it's like, uh, and, and so Josiah, Josiah's human book said, get rid of the heavenly family. Lehi's divine book said, worship them. But to fully see that, we need to take a closer look at, at Lehi's experience. So skipping a little for brevity, as the Book of Mormon opens, we find Lehi throwing himself on his bed, and he has a vision in which the veil of, of heaven is removed, and he sees God, who has a body, sitting on the true heavenly throne that the mercy seat in, in the earthly temple just signifies, surrounded by numberless concourses of angels. This is not the solitary incorporeal God of Josiah that became the God of modern Jews, Orthodox Christians, and Muslims. It was a being like us, surrounded by other beings in human form. From God's throne, Christ descends, followed by 12 others. He gives Lehi uh, the book. Now, here is what Lehi says after receiving the book. I'm going to quote here. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. That's 1 Nephi 1.14. The words Lord God Almighty translate the Hebrew, Yahweh El Shaddai. Three names for God. Yahweh we know, that's Christ. El we know, that's the Father, Elohim, El the Father. But who is Shaddai? You have any idea who Shaddai is? I think you do, right? Because you've talked about this on previous program. Right? Yes. So she's come up before, and, and your longtime listeners, this is not the first time they've heard about her. So, so in the King James, the word Almighty, every time it shows up in the King James Bible, it translates the name Shaddai, a divine name, Shaddai. And Shaddai is almost always connected with fertility and birth when that name appears. So here is an Old Testament passage that Lehi would have loved that talks about all three of these gods, Yahweh, El, and Shaddai. It's the patriarchal blessing given to Joseph, Lehi's ancestor, that Lehi in part fulfills. That's why he would have been so interested in it. So here, here it is from Genesis 49, uh, verses 22 to 25. Joseph is a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. So that's Lehi, right? Going over the wall, going to the, a new continent. Then it says, his hands are made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now, the, the word used here is abir. And, and 
it always refers to Yahweh or Jehovah. And, and it goes on to say, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So this is the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I think we, we can recognize, hey, this is this is Christ. This is the premortal Christ. Then it goes on to says, even by El. Now the word in, in English is God, even by God, but it's El, it's the underlying Hebrew, who shall help thee. And by Shaddai, this is the word almighty, but it's really the underlying Hebrew is Shaddai, who shall bless thee with blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Now, when the word breasts here is Shaddaiim. So important meanings in this passage are expressed through wordplay. Shaddai is connected with breasts, Shaddaiim. Suggesting that she is a goddess, our mother in heaven. Again, she all over the Old Testament, Shaddai shows up. It's like births and women that are struggling with fertility or whatever, and Shaddai gets involved in, in these uh, contexts. So we have good reason in the Old Testament to think, hey, this is a name for mother in heaven. And and again, after Lehi had his vision, what did he say? He would be praised, Yahweh El Shaddai. All three of them receive his praise. So far, so good. But Lehi's dream is where the real payoff comes in restoring worship of mother in heaven. To see how, we need to recognize that Lehi's dream, like his first vision, that it continues. You, you, you should see that first vision as where as continuing on with the dream. It, it's And both are set in Jerusalem. The topography of Jerusalem matches Lehi's dream, and mother was part of that topography. That's a really important point. The highest point in Lehi's Jerusalem is Mount Moriah, where the temple sat. On the east side of the Temple Mount, it declines steeply into the narrow Kidron Valley and then ascends up the slope of the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is located, where Christ ascended into heaven after his ministry on earth, where he will descend at the second coming, and where the people had been worshiping Asherah, their mother in heaven, at a symbolic tree since the time of Solomon. So that puts mother in heaven in a very holy place on the Mount of Olives, which is important in the dream. So we have two mountains with a chasm between them, as in Lehi's dream. Now, in Lehi's dream, there is, of course, a great and spacious building high in the air. So that would be on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, that is full of mocking people who are dressed in fine clothing. The highest building in Lehi's Jerusalem was Solomon's Temple. Then, like the palace, the other great and spacious building in Jerusalem, completely controlled by the followers of Josiah. The priests in the temple and the people in the palace all wore fine clothing and were all hostile to sacred trees and sons of God. And those buildings were on the verge of a great fall complete destruction by the Babylonians, which happened a few years later, because the people in them mocked the prophets and rejected their warnings. So thus far, Lehi's dream corresponds closely, as dreams often do, to what he experienced as he sought to warn the people of Jerusalem and tell them about the Son of God who had come to redeem them. Lehi's dream now continues his first vision. His guide in the dream is Yahweh. Christ, still dressed in white as he was when he descended from heaven with the book. Christ comes to Lehi and says, follow me. After following for a time, Lehi prays to the Lord, Yahweh, Christ, for mercy. Then suddenly, 
sees a sacred tree on the Mount of Olives where the Asherah tree had been located. Clothed in white, Christ has led Lehi to the sacred tree that bears white fruit, the body of Christ. Though he's mocked by the people on the other side of Kidron in the great buildings, Lehi publicly worships at the sacred tree. An extraordinarily important fact for us, I think. This action signifies, I believe, that the gospel won't be fully restored until we do the same thing. Recognize that the son is over and over again, closely connected with mother in our symbols. And that we can't fully worship him without also openly worshiping her. I hope we have time to discuss more of the symbols that make mother and son inseparable divine beings. Now, there are mists of darkness that arise from the Kidron Valley and blind the people. These mists arise from the very place where Josiah had burnt the Asherah that had been in the temple for most of its history and also burnt all the symbols of the host of heaven that included the symbols of the sun. I suggest in my articles that those Deuteronomous mists of darkness have been wrongly obscuring mother in heaven ever since. We don't have time to discuss it today, but I make, I believe, a strong case, this is in the third article, that Laman and Lemuel were devoted followers of Josiah, who was such an active theological revolutionary as they were coming of age. If you read Deuteronomy 13, it commands Laman and Lemon to do just what they did if they encounter a prophet, a dreamer of dreams, even a brother who departs from the Josian Deuteronomist way, as Lehi and Nephi clearly do. So with, with that sort of introduction, do you have any questions on what I've said so far about Lehi's vision and dream? Anything pop out? I mean, I can go on to Nephi's vision, but... So far, I'm with you. I'm following. It's fascinating. I don't think I have any questions at this point. Okay, so let me continue on. Let's go on then to Nephi's vision, because uh, Lehi's vision of Nephi dream reveals mother even more clearly than Lehi's dream does. As the vision opens, Nephi is caught away in the spirit of the Lord to the threshold of heaven. And as David Bakaboy has suggested, he gets a kind of temple interview question. Believest thou that thy father saw the tree? When Nephi says yes, he immediately enters the presence of the Most High God. We know this because the Spirit ex exclaims, as if suddenly in God's presence, Hosanna to the Most High God. Most High God translates the Hebrew El Elyon. So we're talking about God the Father. Nephi's now in heaven in the presence of the Father and the Son. And as seems to be the pattern of heaven and the temple, the Son now gives Nephi a two-step presentation in which, he, in which the, the thing is first described as a plan and is then enacted. Temple goers will recognize this. Nephi is told that what he will see and then sees it. The Spirit tells him, quote, Behold, this thing shall be given thee for a sign that after thou hast beheld the tree which bore the fruit which thy father tasted, thou shalt also behold a man descending out of heaven, and ye shall bear record that it is the Son of God. So in heaven, where he now is, it's very important to note that he's still in heaven. 
Nephi will first see the symbol of mother, the tree that bears Yahweh as fruit. He will then see her fruit, Yahweh, descending from heaven, that is from her. Who or what can this tree in heaven be? Well, you know, we got this tree in heaven. The son of God is going to descend from that tree in heaven. Who can it be? This is another coupling of the divine mother and the son. This is a really important recurring coupling. I think we've got to appreciate this to really understand our savior. We've got to see and understand and appreciate his bonds to his mother. Mm. So the spirit Yahweh now gives Nephi a command. This is Christ in heaven, gives Nephi a command. He says, look, and the plan that has been described now occurs. Nephi says, I looked and I beheld a tree and it was like unto the tree which my father had seen and the beauty thereof was far above, beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. These, these are heavenly attributes. These are not earthly attributes. These are the attributes of something in heaven. Again, Nephi still in heaven. These descriptors, beauties that exceeds all other possible beauty, whiteness that exceeds all possible earthly whiteness are attributes we might expect to see if we were to look at our heavenly mother. And the spirit now asks Nephi, what desirest thou? And Nephi says, I, uh, he wants to know the meaning of the tree. So the spirit, Yahweh, gives Nephi a command. He says, look again. And I looked as if to look upon him, and I saw him not, for he has gone before my presence. So Yahweh commands Nephi to look at him, but when Nephi does, the Lord disappears. So this is kind of a little mystery in the narrative. He says, look at me. He goes to look at him, but he disappears. Where did he go? The setting then suddenly shifts. Nephi's no longer in heaven. He's on earth. Where he looks and he sees Mary, who is exceedingly fair and white. Fair and white. Those are, that's a quote. That's the, how she's described. In other words, when Nephi looks to see Yahweh, he sees instead Mary, who has the same two attributes that characterize the tree woman that Nephi saw in heaven, exceptional beauty and whiteness. Next time Nephi is commanded to look, he sees Yahweh as a baby in Mary's arms. He is told, behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the son of God after the manner of the flesh. Now, if the mother, if the son of God had only one mother, this statement would have been unqualified. It's the mother of the son of God. No, but it says the mother of the son of God after the manner of the flesh. The qualifier after the manner of the flesh implies that the son of God has another mother after the manner of the spirit. The heavenly mother signified by the glorious tree Nephi saw while he was still in heaven, from whom the son descended. Here again, we see how closely linked mother and son are. We can't fully have one without the other. Do you think we can really know who Christ is? And what blessings he brings us if we don't know our Heavenly Mother? What do you think, Jess? Is it, can we know the Savior, the Son, fully without knowing the Mother? I mean, I've listened to your podcast. I think I, <laughs> I, I, yeah. think I have some idea of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I desire to know the tree from, wh from whence Christ comes. You know, I know... I know what I know about Christ through 
personal experiences with him and through reading about him in the scriptures. Um, but if there's more that I can know about where he came from, about that tree that birthed him, yeah, I think that does help us understand who he is more fully. I think most of us would be interested to know more about that tree. About the tree and, and also about why he is so consistently connected with her in scripture in various ways, and not just in scripture, in the temple too. So the scriptures that we're discussing here suggest, you know, you really can't know the son without knowing this tree that he's connected to and from which he comes. We don't have time to get into it fully now, but Nephi goes on to say that the love of God, the beings that God most loves and who most bless humanity are the son who sheds his blood abroad in the hearts of the children of men, the tree whose meaning is now clear, the mother in heaven from whom the son descends and a fountain of pure water. See, each of these things are, are it's talking about the love of God. It says each of these things are the love of God. And the fountain of pure water, which I show in my articles, was also a part of Jerusalem topography and was rec was a recognized symbol of connected with Mother Asherah. Uh, it's called the virgin, uh, a thing that was called the Virgin Spring, too, so it could be connected to Mary as well. So God's mm -hmm. love is manifest in the son and the mother, with the mother signified by her symbols, the tree and the fountain of pure water. Nephi now uses both of those symbols for mother. First, the fountain of water, because he, he next discusses Christ's baptism. Baptism is a perfect example of the coupling of mother and son. Doesn't, doesn't baptism strike you, Jess, as an inherently female symbol? Have you ever thought about that before? Yes, I love that imagery. It's like being surrounded in a womb again. <laughs> yes. And water, right? And we come out with water and blood. We're born of water and blood as we're baptized. And, and also, at, at some point, if this is totally connected with it, the spirit comes into us, right? So baptism, the conferral of the spirit, uh, the, the, the Holy Ghost coming. That is all built around a, a female, a powerful female symbol. And, and so what we have is Christ participating in this powerful female symbol. That's that's the the first thing uh, that the Book of Mormon is giving us as the beginning of his ministry, uh, him uh, emerging, being being born of the water, uh, a spiritual birth. So in it's a, it's an inherently female symbol. There's no birth without a mother, without water and blood of the mother. So when we're baptized, we rise to new spiritual birth from the font symbol of our spiritual mother, cleansed by the joint action of mother and son, the blood and water of mother and son. So again, this is one of the places where I think we really have to see mother in heaven and Christ jointly working for our salvation. Our baptismal, our baptism is a really important symbol, and, and we need to see our mother there as well as our Savior Christ, her son. That's so beautiful. I think so, too. And it's worth noting that in Mosiah chapter 18, Alma at the Waters of Mormon, where we normally read our baptismal covenant, both these symbols of mother, a grove of trees and a fountain of pure water are specifically noted as being present. So when we when we go to the Waters of Mormon, in a sense, our baptismal fonts are the Waters of Mormon. 
Uh, there we find the grove of trees protecting. It's described as a protective thing there. And the, and the uh, fountain of pure water, both, I believe, symbols of mother. After discussing Christ's baptism, Nephi next couples mother and son in his account of, of the crucifixion. The Deuteronomists, this is a command in Deuteronomy, they were told to hang apostates on a tree, or at least that's one of the ways they could kill them. The New Testament describes the cross as a tree. So mother was symbolically with her son as he hung on the tree. It occurred to me as I was preparing for this podcast that the nails that pierce Christ's body also pierced the cross. Mm. And Mary, mother surrogate, also stood at the foot of the cross. What do you think, Jess? Can we persuasively say mother was very much present at the, commu- at the crucifixion in symbol and in surrogate? Yes, that's amazing to think about. I had never considered the connection with the nails piercing her symbol as well. That is neither had I. I hadn't ever thought of it before, you know. But it's like, what did mother feel when her son? I mean, you're you're a mother. Many mothers are listening to this. What would a mother feel when her son is being crucified? Uh, it wasn't only him who was pierced. And I think when we recognize her in her symbol and surrogate, we get some knowledge of what she experienced as he was having that experience. In the article that's in the Square Two, uh, which is a great journal, it's Valerie Hudson's uh, journal, and it's a great journal for anyone interested in things pertaining to Mother in Heaven to peruse and be acquainted with what's going on there. But in that in that article, I do quote a verse, and I don't have it with me here, but it talks about the atonement happens when a tree bends low and blood flows out of wood. This is a quote from an ancient scripture, which we don't have, but this is a, an ancient Christian text that is using that quotation from scripture. And I think what I feel from that is the mother's experience of the atonement. The blood flowed not just out of the son, but in a sense out of the mother too, who was pierced by those nails as her son was pierced. Wow. Yeah. So after discussing Christ's baptism, Nephi next couples mother and son in his account of the crucifixion, as I've discussed. And that is... I think, an an extraordinarily powerful part of his vision. Now, what I'd like to do is make a shift. This is is a shift from my articles to thinking about our temples, uh, because I think the mother and son are coupled so much in our, our current temples. And I'd like to review a little bit that, if, if I could. Great. While it's clear that Lehi, in what Lehi and Nephi say, the place where we most clearly see the coupling of mother and son, I believe, is in our modern temples. It's also in the ancient temple. It was important there, too, because they had tree symbolism all over the place in the <laughs> temple, not to mention the Asherah statue, which was there for most of its history. So she was very much in the ancient temple. But but I think she's she's there with the son very much in our modern temple, too. So I hope we can spend a little time discussing how they're linked there. While there are things that covenants prevent us from talking about in the temple, we can't say 
everything about the temple, or obviously we covenanted not to do that. I think we can discuss some of the temple symbols that powerfully link mother and son. So the ceremony starts, of course, at the lowest level with the baptism and the conferral of the spirit. We've already discussed how that is female symbolism. It clearly involves mother uh, or some female, the divine mother, the mother of our spirits. When we're born again spiritually, would the mother of our spirits be there symbolically? I think she very definitely is. At the next level, we're washed with water. We have the washings and anointings, and these things are public. And that water can be linked to the fountain of pure water, one of mother's preeminent symbols that flows from the roots of the tree. Uh, sometimes you'll see in temple iconography, if you think back to your experience, temple experiences. And still more clearly, we are anointed with olive oil. Now, Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew for oil press. It's, it's such a powerful symbol, really, oil press. Uh, Elder Holland has talked about this in, in with real feeling. And, and so in her tree guise, mother was with the son, not just on the cross, but in Gethsemane, a garden, a place that had trees where they, olive trees where they produced olive oil. The tree, mother, and the fruit, Christ, combined to produce olive oil, which sanctifies us in the temple and heals us when we're sick. Thus, mother symbolically touches us, both in the temple as we're sanctified and outside of the temple when we suffer illness and are anointed with olive oil that comes from the fruit of the tree. It comes from the tree. It comes from the fruit of the tree. It comes from the mother. It comes from the son. Uh, so have you ever, have you ever, uh, well, I, I, know, I know you've read some of what I've written. I think I talk about this, but had you ever thought before about olive oil in our ritual practice and ritual use signifying mother? Is that something that occurred to you before? I've heard that and how she is symbolized in the olive and the tree and the oil, but I had never quite had that imagery of her touching my head when I'm anointed. Just makes it so much more personal and profound. Uh, most of us have this symbol of mother in our home, and it's, it's used uh, to to bless us if we are sick and need. And when do people turn to their mother? <laughs> when my kids are sick. They don't turn to me uh, when they were little, at least. And she's there for us when we are in need. So at the second level, we also receive our garments, which are an extremely important and powerful symbol. And I'm indebted to Margaret Toscano for a precious insight about her garments. I had never thought this before, but she suggests that the marks in the garment have the configuration of the marks in Christ's body. So the breast marks signify the marks in his hands, the navel mark, approximately the place of the spear in his side, and the knee mark signifies the one nail that pierced both feet. So this means that we symbolically wear the skin of Christ, something that was given, this, uh, the, uh, uh, something that was given to us by Christ, that we are protectively encapsulated in his body when we wear our garments. If we read the garment in this way, as the pierced skin of Christ. Do you see any connection or kinship between that, the garment and the sacrament we take each week? 
You ever thought about that? With the garment, we put Christ around us externally. He's covering our body externally. And the sacrament puts him within us. And both of them help us claim what Elder Bednar calls the enabling power of the atonement. The sacrament prayers are not the same. The prayer on the bread is not the same. In, in, the, in the prayer on the bread, we say we're willing to always keep his commandments and do what he tells us. But we're willing, but we're not able. After we put the bread within us, we put Christ's body within us, then the prayer on the water is a little bit different. It says we do always remember him, not that we're willing to do it, but that we do remember him. With our own power alone, we don't have that capability, but with Christ in us, we're able to do what we were only willing to do. So the garment is so important. The sacrament is so important because that is Christ coming to us. And what is Christ in Lehi's dream? It's that fruit hanging from the tree. That's the sacramental body of Christ. It's same white color as, as he is in his white robe as he leads Lehi to the mother tree. But in preparing for this podcast, I realized, and I never thought of this, I'm embarrassed to say I had never fully thought of this, although I, I think my wife once told me something that was sort of related to this. I realized that the breast and navel marks connect us symbolically with mother at least as powerfully as they do with Christ. The breasts and the navel connect us in the first instance with our mothers. We're nourished by our mothers at the navel. We're nourished by our mothers at the breast. That has to be their first meaning. So though Toscano's insight is is a wonderful secondary meaning, I'll never lose that. I'm going to love it forever. But this that what I'm what I've been trying to say through this is over and over again, we see the symbols of Christ, the marks in his body, connected to symbols of mother. Christ and mother are connected. When he's hanging from the tree, he's there with her. And on our garments, I think we find the marks in his body, but we also find the sources of nourishment from a mother. And I don't think it's an accident that those two things have been linked. I don't know for sure what to make of the knee mark. How does that link us to mother? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because like the breast marks, obvious, right? The navel mark, obvious. The knee mark, what does a a knee have to do with mother? Does anything occur to you? Thank you for listening to part one of this conversation with Dr. Val Larson. We will be back next Sunday with the rest of the conversation and we'll let you ponder on Dr. Val's last question. Please share this episode. Leave us a review if you haven't already. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so at anchor.fm slash in her image. And we'll be back next week.